Our scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm in the process of a series through the book of 1 Peter, and this is the passage that I'm up to in our congregation. And so we'll read chapter 2. We take as our text the last verses, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. And we won't reread those verses. We hear the inspired, infallible word of our God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation." Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then here follow the words of our text. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it If when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable 
with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the bishop, the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle is talking about our honest walk in the world. And he speaks of the importance of the witness of Christians. He's been speaking of that throughout chapter 2. He speaks of who we are, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he emphasizes how those praises are to be displayed among the Gentiles. And he begins to focus on the various areas of our life where that ought to be evident. It ought to be evident with regard to our attitude and conduct toward authority, toward the rulers. It ought to be evident in our conduct toward our employers. And then finally, in chapter 3, he gets at the realm of marriage and the family. Never may we compromise our Christian principles for the sake of material carnal reasons. We're tempted to make so many compromises in the Christian life in relation to the government, compromising in order to preserve financial gain on our part. We're interested in self by nature and self-advancement and difficult it is to submit to the principles of Scripture as they pertain to that relationship to those in authority. Peter establishes the principle of submission to authority. And now he applies it to labor. We're tempted to compromise in the area of labor as well. Our conduct in the workplace must be such that even the Gentiles, even the wicked, respect us and approve of our conduct. And more than that, that they see that being a Christian has implications for every area of life. And as Christians, that impact is also seen in the way that we work and in the interaction that we have to our bosses, to those who are in authority. Now, very striking is the Bible's emphasis on the place of servants. The Bible does not overthrow the practices of society. Rather, it respects those differences among men as of God. The fact that one is a master and others a slave is of God. And God leaves the masters masters. He leaves the slaves slaves. And God has a word for each. This afternoon we look at God's word regarding servants. Now the term emphasizes here the absolute character and nature of the dominion of the one who's a master. The one who's a master is the one who has absolute authority over the one who's a servant. 
The apostle says some masters were good, some masters were gentle. Other masters were froward, that is, they were cruel, they were mean, they were perverse. But regardless, the child of God reflects his Christian faith by submitting to them and doing so for Christ's sake. The apostle brings in the beautiful reference here to Christ and to his perfect submission as the ground, as the foundation of that work of grace in our lives. We look at Christian workers exhorted here, noting first of all the duty, the calling set before them. Secondly, the purpose as it's tied to Christ. And finally, the blessedness. Servants be subject to your masters with all fear. The word there originally was directed to those servants who were bound to their master in obedience. And they belonged to the master. They did everything that the master required of them. They were not free. They were bound as slaves, as servants of the master. Now even though the reference here is to house servants, the principle we know applies broader to the relationship between employee and employer. The frequency with which the Bible addresses this admonition to servants needs to cause us to pause. It underscores the urgency of this word and also the need for us as sinners to hear it. Our sinful natures are not inclined to submit. Our sinful natures are not inclined to esteem others. Again and again, the scripture comes with this admonition directed to servants. Now this doesn't imply that masters have no obligations. We know the Bible has much to say also about the calling and role of masters. Especially, for instance, Colossians 4 verse 1. But here the calling in this passage is specifically to employees. The employee must love, honor, respect, and obey his master. He must seek the well-being, the good of the company that he works for, and the best interests of his employer. He's forbidden to do anything that would harm the business. Only when something unbiblical is required, may he then refuse obedience, but even then, his calling yet is to submit. Always we know the worker is free to give his two weeks notice, or even quicker, in order to leave that job if dissatisfied and find another, if he's being treated wrongly. But we know he has no right to speak disrespectfully. He has no right to slander, no right to backbite. His calling is to serve and obey the will of Christ. Now the apostle here talks about fear. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. The fear here is not terror. And as has been true throughout 1 Peter, again and again, that reference comes up. That we're to serve God. That we're to respect others. That we're to honor others with that fear. It's a fear that has to do with love, with honor, with respect. It's a fear of God, which also involves a fear that's displayed toward the employer. We love them. We submit to them. We honor them for God's sake. And that submission involves the fear of God then as Christ is the one ruling us through 
these employers whom he set over us. The master is the one who's Lord and who rules the servants. Now, literally, the word there for master is despot. And that word has a negative connotation in our day, referring to a ruthless, tyrannical dictator, one who makes rules that are just for his own good and for his own service. The word here, however, is used to refer to the absolute character of the domain that that one rules. In other words, this one has absolute control and authority. Today, this would apply to the one who owns the company, the one who has total authority, total control over the business that he owns and that he operates. He has control over the funds. He has control over the employees, control over the sales, control over everything that pertains to that business. In our day, the master is equated then with the employer, whom God places in that position of authority. The employee must be subject to the employer with this godly fear. And we realize that applies broadly. A minister is not exempted, as we've seen in the recent history of our churches. He too is called to submit to the authority that God places through the consistory. A consistory might tell a pastor what title they prefer him to go by. Pastor, reverend, might instruct him as to how he should dress with regard to teaching catechism or society. May limit him with regard to what speaking engagements he takes on or what he does not do. What writing he does or what he doesn't. May instruct him as to what benedictions, what blessings he makes use of. He submits to their instruction willingly for Christ's sake with that godly fear. Now, in our modern society, we're no longer accustomed to the master-slave relationship. Under our modern system, workers are free. They're free to work as they please in one place, one business, and free to leave and to move to another if they desire, which is good and right. Under our system, management no longer rules and owns the laborer in that sense. Nor can the management do with that person what he or she pleases, which again is good and right in accordance with the Bible. Yet the principle of our text still stands. The employer has complete authority over his employee for the time that that employee works for him. The employer has complete authority over the time, the conduct, the clothing, the dress, the speech, everything. And that authority must be respected. The employee must be subject to the employer in all fear. Even though masters do not own their workers, the worker is expected to be in subjection. He must submit, even if he can't, in all cases, obey. There may be consequences even for disobedience, including losing one's job. But these are the sufferings then that that one endures for being a follower of Christ. The master is expected to rule his workers in the fear of Jehovah. And as I stated, that comes out clearly in other passages of Scripture. There's always the temptation that this relationship be less than spiritual. 
Elect strangers, which is what Peter identifies us as. Have yet sinful natures. We're still in the flesh. We're tempted to use our masters for our own selfish gain. We're tempted to steal from them. We're tempting, tempted to abuse the things that they give to us. We're tempted to use our servants at times as masters now for our own selfish gain, refusing to pay them what they deserve, working them harder than we ought, perhaps even abusing them. We're inclined to seek the things that are below. There are workers, there are servants who respond favorably to good masters, only then to turn on them for material purposes. They're eye-pleasers, men-pleasers, seeking the favor of men. When their employers are cruel, they rebel. They organize strikes against them. And from that, per- from that perspective also, the passage speaks indirectly and clearly regarding the evil of labor unions. Labor unions stand diametrically opposed to this word of God. The greed... The evil of the strike is such that it's motivated by materialism and covetousness. And the strike clause of a labor union views the relationship between the company and the employer or the employees as equals instead of a master-servant. Even taking the employees and usurping them over the employer so that the employees now make demands of the owner of the business. And they say to the master, you can't take my job away, even though I'm not going to work. I'm going to cause all kinds of harm to your business by stopping production for you. I, together with these workers with whom I work, am going to decide who works with us and who works for you. And we're going to deny you the right to hire someone in our place. Now, where's the honor? Where's the fear of God of which the scriptures repeatedly speak and demand of the employee with regard to his employer? That's a violation of the fifth commandment. Notice that Peter here talks about submission in connection with suffering. He doesn't talk about the right of every servant to make as much money as he wants. He doesn't even talk about the right to eat. He emphatically states the importance of submission which may lead to suffering. That suffering may be such that we are treated evilly. For this is thankworthy, verse 19, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. That's acceptable with God. It's one thing to be disciplined and treated because of faults that we've committed. It's another thing to be doing what's right and to be treated wrongfully. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2 make that emphatic. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. Now, beloved, this word of God applies to all of us in one way or another. Every one of us, first of all, are servants of Jehovah God. Jesus Christ is the supreme example of a servant. He gave himself completely to the service of his Lord. 
He came not to do his own will, but the will of his heavenly Father who had sent him. He took upon himself the form of a servant, sacrificing himself on the cross. He didn't seek his own glory. He sought the glory, the honor of his Father in heaven. He did not come to be ministered unto, but he came to minister to his children. The devotion, the loyalty, the obedience of Jesus Christ was perfect, uncompromised. And the Bible speaks of many examples of servants who pointed to Jesus Christ, who served as types of that perfect servanthood. Moses is repeatedly called the servant of Jehovah. David is called the servant of the Lord again and again as he served as king and ruler in Israel. Samuel, Nehemiah, Simeon, multiple of the apostles are designated again and again as God's servants. These men stood before Jehovah God and served him faithfully. We're called to give ourselves to the service of the Lord unwaveringly. What comes first is not my goals, my ambitions, my ideas. What comes first is not my business, money, but God. And the fact that I am called to live as a servant of Jehovah God. I'm a servant called by God to perfect obedience in his service. And God gives us work to do. God works grace in our hearts. He gives us his spirit that we might faithfully take up that work and perform it. And our calling is to do it for the glory, for the honor of Jehovah God. To do the will of God from the heart, obediently. Now we must not imagine that God needs us as his servants. To imagine that God would be hopelessly lost if he didn't have us to assist and to help him. God needs nothing. We don't give God something that he doesn't already have through our service. In all the service of the Lord, we can never even begin to give him. He's not already given. The very fact that he takes us and he employs us as his servants is a wonder of grace. And within that calling of servanthood, a high standard then is required of us. We are obligated from the heart to show forth his praise in everything that we do. To serve him, to obey him. Now many of us with our own businesses find ourselves as servants of Jehovah now, appointed by the Lord to be lords over others. We're called to serve God faithfully as masters. We must must use the authority, we must use the ability that God has given us, again, in his service and for his glory. How we treat our employees matters. How we treat our employees may differ from employee to employee, from circumstance to circumstance. And those with experience in supervising people know that. Often there aren't set rules that can be followed. Much wisdom is required and needed as each person is dealt with according to their own ability and according to their needs. 
Our calling in life is not merely to run a good business and make a lot of money, but it's to serve God in relationship to our employees. And we're a witness of the power of God's grace in our lives in how we treat our employees. They not only know that we're Christians, they must see it by the manner in which we run our business and interact with them. But now again, this passage is directed especially toward servants. Peter is exhorting servants or employees. Three things especially flow out of this. All that start with a D. First of all, as to your deportment. That is, the way you conduct yourself. Striving in everything to please, he says. The Christian employee, who's a servant of the Lord, does his work heartily, as before God. He strives to meet the needs of the business, of the employer, as he's able. Seeking to please him in all things. Doing his work well. And conducting himself with a godly deportment. Using all his abilities, using his gifts that God has given him, using the energy that God has provided in the service of his master. And practically this means that the Christian worker then puts in a good day of hard, faithful labor. His work shines with excellence according to the ability that God has given to him. His deportment. But secondly, his disposition. That is his attitude is characterized by humility, by submission, not by speaking against. The Christian worker does his work willingly, cheerfully, not grudgingly. He may see the evil of men advancing in prosperity, in positions through corruption, through violence. He may be tempted at times to follow that way because he sees that that's the way of advancement. But he knows who he is. He's an elect stranger of God. He's called to serve Jehovah God with all that he is. He may find it extremely difficult working with individuals who advance above him through wickedness and through deceit. He may see his boss rewarding evil practice and corruption. He may think, I know better than my boss how things ought to be operated and done. And though he may bring it to the attention of the employee, employer, he does so with humility. He does so with care. Not responding with disrespectful, provoking language. Using his example as the most powerful means to silence the accusations of wicked men. And because the Christian realizes that he does all things unto the Lord, he finds joy and satisfaction even in the most tedious and laborious of tasks. His great joy, his satisfaction is found in serving God faithfully and righteously. His attitude of humility, his attitude of submission demonstrates that grace of God in his life. His deportment, his disposition, and finally, his dependability. He refuses to steal from his employer. He doesn't take advantage of the employer, but rather he builds trust. He's dependable. The temptation of the worker is to pursue material gain, regardless of the means. And he's tempted sometimes to follow the ways of corruption in order to be advanced, or to be lazy and to rob his employer. 
Perhaps he sees the wealth that God is providing to his employer and he becomes covetous, becomes greedy, steals time, not being as faithful as he ought, causes projects to be drug out because of his laziness, stealing tools, stealing product, wasting the goods that he's entrusted with, doesn't take care of the machines, the vehicles that he's entrusted with. And once he begins to harbor thoughts of taking things that are not right and justifying it in his own mind, it becomes more and more challenging to do good as his conscience becomes more and more hardened. The servant of Jehovah fights against materialism as his idol. He serves Jehovah. He serves God. And he knows it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. He's aware of the great danger of the love of riches and how that will lead him away from his Lord. And so he walks in a manner that builds trust and dependability with the employer. His deposition, his attitude, his disposition, his dependability. What is the purpose? What is the reason for which God calls us to this service? For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. The Christian is called to serve Christ in his work. And no, the expectation is that the Christian is going to suffer. The sufferings of Christ is for our benefit. And we're to reflect Christ in our walk and our conduct, knowing that even as they treated Christ wrongfully, so also his servants are going to experience troubles and difficulties as they seek to live faithfully before God's face. Christ maintained perfectly those three areas in his walk and conduct. As to his deportment, Christ maintained himself perfectly. He was a suffering servant. There was no guile found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2, 22. Men thoroughly examined his speech. They analyzed his doctrines. They could never detect a lie, any deceit, any falsehood in him. His deportment, even before wicked men, was perfect. His labor before his father, diligent, unceasing, faithful, until the very end. In all things, his focus and his goal was not his own will, not his own way, but glorifying his Father through the submission and the obedience that was required of him. And beloved, that's the goal, that's the focus of the Christian employee as he labors for the sake of Christ in the service of not just his employer, but Jehovah God, who has put that employer in his place. Secondly, Christ was perfect as to his disposition, his attitude. Only by the power of and for the sake of Christ can the employee walk in humility with respect to his conduct. He remembers his Lord Jesus Christ. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, yet he opened not his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, verse 23. Rather than striving to obtain vengeance, rather than trying to get back, 
He recalls the words of Jehovah, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He stands with Joseph, with Daniel, with Nehemiah in their faithful, humble devotion to their heathen employers, praying that God will use him as a great testimony by his diligent, humble service. But finally, Christ was dependable to his heavenly Father, faithful to the end. He was committed to his heavenly Father in all things. And again, by the power of Christ, the servant is able to be faithful, looking to Christ, who gave up everything, who humbled himself even unto death, trusting in the grace, trusting in the strength of Jesus Christ to keep him from greed, from covetousness, to preserve him in the midst of this world, knowing that to whom much is given, much also is required. For hereunto were ye called. Our calling is to be faithful for Christ's sake. Our calling is to be example to those around us of the wonder and the power of the grace of God in the hearts and lives of his children. God hates the sluggard. The man who refuses to work stands condemned by God. He commands us to work diligently with our heads and with our hands. The employee always may quit his job and find another. He may always talk to his employer, express his need for more wages perhaps, for better working conditions, but always with respect, with honor, with love. Never may he seek the harm of his business, his employer. And God uses that earthly labor to prepare us for his glorious, everlasting kingdom. God is teaching us patience. He's teaching us holiness. He's teaching us spiritual traits through our walk and conduct. And we grow in godliness. We grow in contentment. We grow in holiness as servants and masters, growing in grace and suffering for the Lord's sake at times. But by the wonder of God's grace in our hearts, we will, in our weakness, reflect Christ, his faithfulness, his humility, his dependability. And in doing so, we expect suffering. Again, that's striking in this passage. That suffering will come. That suffering is to be expected. And we ask ourselves, why does it please God to see his children suffer unjustly? Why did God desire that we endure that suffering with patience? Why does my heavenly Father, who loves me, allow me and even demand at times such suffering? Does not God want me to be happy? Does not God want me to be prosperous and free from suffering? That's the struggle, is it not, of the believer? And we're tempted. We hear all around us, God wants you to be happy. God doesn't want you to be struggling. God doesn't want you to be suffering. Is that true? Nowhere in the Bible do we find such a promise of God regarding his children. Rather, the believer's life is set forth as strangers, as pilgrims, as those who suffer, as those who experience distress, as those who know affliction, who know pain, cross-bearing. It's a life that from every earthly perspective is not desirable. Why is this? God delights 
in the suffering of his children for Christ's sake. And God is using that suffering for a purpose. God is increasingly cutting ties to this earth. He's directing us more and more to the glory of the heavenly bliss that is ours. He's using our suffering for the sake of his glory. The gospel of Jesus Christ is contrary to all human wisdom. Suffering in this world is inevitable for those who follow after God, who walk in holiness, who walk in godliness. And God's people on earth are required to suffer. Also at the hands of unjust employers. Verse 21 makes it God's will. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. That suffering is a privilege. That suffering is a blessing. That suffering is reason for thanksgiving even and for joy. Jesus himself told us, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, rejoice in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Expect not only persecution, but as that persecution comes to us for Christ's sake, know that this too is that which God has ordained for our good. But another purpose is set forth here. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Verse 24. This is a very significant verse, and it adds to the here of Peter. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, bore our sins himself. He stood alone as the head of his elect, authorized and appointed by God to bear the sins of those whom he represented. He bore your and my sins of pride, of self-seeking. He bore your and my sins of covetousness, of lust. He carried your and my sins of rebellion, of self-seeking, of lack of submission. And he bore your sins of the tongue. Every sin, he carried them to the cross. Literally, the idea here is that he put them on the altar and he laid them there. Now, when the priest would take a bullock and they would lay that bullock on the altar, they would then place their hands on that bullock or that offering. And it was a picture of the sins of the people being transferred now to that animal. And then that animal would be consumed, would be burned up, as a picture of their sins now being cast off. Their sins destroyed. Jesus bore our sins, and he laid himself on the altar, destroying the power of sin, the dominion of sin in principle, so that sin has no power over those For whom he died. We are separate from sin. And we're given grace now to seek and to do what's good. We're forgiven of our sins. We cringe against suffering. Immediately, we're inclined to think, I deserve better. Rather than promoting, rather than pursuing your rights, think of Christ. And look to Christ. And repent. And know the forgiveness that is yours. He took your sins on himself. He bore them. And the result is now the child of God lives unto righteousness. That's our privilege. That's our obligation. Every man in the world lives either unto sin or unto righteousness. 
The child of God no longer lives unto sin. He lives unto righteousness by the grace of God that's in him. He still sins, but he lives unto righteousness. And the wonder is that God works in him repentance. God works in him confession of that sin and forgiveness. To live unto righteousness means to do what's right in our lives. That's the fruit. That's the wonder of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And that's going to result in suffering. It results in sacrifice. This keeps the child of God humble as he lives as a pilgrim, as a stranger here below. Reminded his reward is not earthly. His reward is spiritual. His reward is heavenly. And the child of God lives unto righteousness, submitting to his employer as the God-given authority over him. In the face of impossible situations at times, the confidence of the child of God is found in Christ, who not only was faithful, but whose faithfulness is given also to his children. In that, beloved, there is blessing. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Verse 25. By nature we go our own way. By nature we pursue our own unrighteousness. As foolish sheep, we think we know better. But the way that we go leads to sorrow. It leads to guilt, to troubled conscience. And without repentance, to everlasting judgment in hell. Beloved, Christ has rescued us. Christ has turned us. And that's the idea here. Jesus Christ has turned you. He's taken you to himself, and he's given you the victory. That's been the emphasis throughout Peter. In chapter 1, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Who are you? You are the elect of God. You are sanctified unto obedience. You are those who have been given an inheritance incorruptible. You are those who are being kept by the power of Jehovah God through faith unto salvation. You are those who are holy and called to that holiness, even as God himself, as your Father, is holy. You are those who are born again Not born again out of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God that lives and abides forever. And then in chapter 2, he continues that admonition. You are a chosen generation, verse 9, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In other words, the apostle repeatedly is saying, be who you are. This is who you are. This is who God has made you. And now as you live out of the wonder of that reality, you're going to shine forth. Your conversation is going to be honest. That is your life among the Gentiles so that Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they're going to see your good works. And notice, they may by your good works, which they shall behold. They will see it. Those good works will be evident because those are God's work. 
being performed in and through you in order to glorify God in the day of visitation. Christ has rescued you. He has turned you. And he has given to you the victory. The shepherd, the chief bishop of your soul, of the sheep, is the one who cares for you. He's the one who upholds you. And he protects you. He leads you. He feeds you. He rules over you. And he's caring for the whole of your being, body and soul, as your shepherd, as your chief bishop. There are going to be struggles in your life. There are going to be hardships. The way is going to be difficult. But you go forward as pilgrims and strangers. In this confidence, Christ is your keeper. He has given you the victory. Your value and worth is not based on how other people treat you, what they say about you. It's not based upon how others deal with you and abuse you. Your value and worth is in what God has sovereignly ordained and what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. He's your keeper. In him is the victory. And you will experience that blessedness as you lean on him and as you pursue his will. The Christian servant then works with his hands, works with his mind in order to have possessions for his family, to provide for the cause of Christ the support of the church, the causes of the kingdom, for the relief of the poor. He does so as a servant of God, knowing all that I am and all that I have is God's. It's not mine. And therefore he gives liberally, generously, cheerfully as the Lord has prospered him. He uses the means that God has given him to provide for the causes of God's kingdom. He labors in the fear the love, the honor, the respect of Jehovah. He labors out of thankfulness, knowing that he's but a pilgrim, he's but a stranger. This isn't where he's establishing himself. He has that building made without hands, eternal in the heavens. And God will provide his servants with all their needs. God promises that he will give us our daily bread. It may require of us sometimes looking at our priorities, looking at whether or not we have been faithful stewards. Sometimes it may need the help of family, even of deacons, to analyze our situation and to determine whether we've been faithful and how we can be faithful. It may at times require the mercies of Christ to assist us. God will grant his own, his blessing. And the faithful servant experiences godly contentment, godly peace, knowing the blessedness of honoring God with his substance and trusting God to supply his every need. And marvelously, beloved, God will use you to adorn himself. Verse 12 again. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. God doesn't need anything to make him more glorious, more honorable, and yet God uses the diligent labor that he works in and through us by his spirit to glorify and to praise himself to bring unbelieving employers and even employees 
to see the power of God's grace, to see the power of the truth in the lives of those with whom they labor, to give unbelieving employers no excuse for their wickedness, to use the godly example, the hard labor, the diligence to promote the good of his kingdom. Seeing our works, others may glorify our Father who is in heaven. Using our struggles, the challenges in the workplace to shape and fashion us, to trust him more, to look to him in prayer, and to prepare us for our service in glory. History has repeatedly proven that although the world brings all kinds of accusations against God's children, they remain among the best, the most faithful laborers. Though godly men of old lived and worked in the most heathen of courts for the most cruel and wicked of masters, they were a testimony by their diligent and faithful labors as servants. And God continues to use that diligence, that faithfulness, to glorify and honor himself. Christian workers exhorted to serve God. And as Protestant Reformed workers and young people, among the best to hire, among the best to work for, God using that reputation to adorn the doctrine that we confess and to give glory and honor to him. Many are the dangers, many are the struggles of our pilgrim's journey. But in the sheepfold of our shepherd and under his loving care, we are kept safe. He's the shepherd, the bishop of our souls. Having earned our salvation, he does everything in our lives to accomplish it fully. And we remember, beloved, that servants are no less important than masters. Our Lord is no respecter of persons. God does not regard the great, the glorious, the wealthy, the mighty more highly than those who are lowly, those who are impoverished. Whether we be servants or masters, we look to him. And we trust in him. And we look for our reward, not here in heaven, but as a reward of grace from our Father, who is in heaven. And this motivates us by God's grace to labor as those who labor with godly fear, with trembling, knowing our weakness, knowing our shortcomings, crying out to him for mercy, and praying for the grace as faithful, humble servants to live unto him. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the glorious place to which thou hast called us, the marvelous wonder that thou hast given unto us as thy children, those who are a peculiar people who have been called to show forth thy praise. We give thanks for the wonder of thy work of grace in our hearts, working in us repentance, turning us from covetousness, greed, the pursuit of our own will and our own way. And we pray, Lord, that thou wilt Glorify and honor thyself in and through our humble labors, that thy name might receive all praise and honor. Forgive us and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.